This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. We must see the central narrative for the fiction that it is. We are Americans. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Friday, April 7th, 2023, the 807th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at I'm your moderator.substack.com. You can do so for as little as $50 a year or $5 a month, and in doing so, you will be supporting me, the work I do, and this show as it expands. And if you can't or you simply don't want to, continue listening to the podcast for free on a wide variety of podcast platforms. And of course, Rumble, all I ask is that you share it with your friends. You can find the links to the writing, the podcast, the social media, and the merch site by visiting linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. So. The other day, we talked about NPR and how NPR's Twitter account had been labeled state-affiliated media by 
Elon Musk, and there was a bit of an uproar. NPR responded, we don't actually get our funding primarily from the state. It's just a very small percentage of the funding that we actually get. And they're technically correct about that. But nonetheless, that does not make them not state-affiliated media. They are absolutely state-affiliated media. And Tucker Carlson did his opening monologue on NPR and their funding and the fact that they are state-affiliated media, but he didn't go really far enough. And my concern when watching it was that it felt a bit like a limited hangout. And we've seen plenty of those from Tucker over the years. Maybe he'll add on to it at some point, but I kind of doubt it. And it leaves me wondering exactly what Tucker was trying to accomplish by blowing up NPR when he's on Fox News. Don't get me wrong, it's great that he's talking about the fact that they are state-affiliated media, but the truth is, all of our mainstream media, on some level, is state-affiliated media. And they, of course, are disseminating the messages of the state. And this does matter because, again, media that we receive from around the world, if it doesn't fit in with the global regime's agenda, if they are not mouthpieces of the global state, then they get labeled state media. And we are told they shouldn't be believed by virtue of the fact that they are state media. By the same token, the BBC is state media, the CBC in Canada, state media. And of course, NPR here is state media. And so let's go a little further into NPR's funding and find out exactly what it was that Tucker missed. NPR says that under 1% of their money comes from the federal government and that 70% of the money comes from corporate sponsorships and fees paid by member organizations. So let's go a little deeper into that. Their corporate advertising is handled through an organization called National Public Media. And on their website, they break down what NPR's audience is and why it would be beneficial to advertise with them based on the audience that can be reached. And so they have this broken down by categories on their website. They say the NPR audience is influential, cultured, engaged, conscientious, adventurous, and tech savvy. And they've done some polling. They released their numbers to advertisers. And here are a couple of examples of how they describe their audience. 80% of NPR listeners consider NPR personally important to them. 87% take action in response to something heard on NPR. 74% hold a more positive opinion of companies that support NPR. 72% of NPR listeners prefer to do business with companies that support NPR. They are influential. NPR's audience is 92% more likely to work in top management, 41% more likely to be C-suite, 212% more likely to have something they wrote published. Very important, obviously. They're also cultured. They are 102% more likely to have attended an art gallery or show in the past year, 107% more likely to have visited a museum in the past year, and 65% more likely to read books two or more times a week. Isn't that fantastic? They're conscientious. 
50% more likely to purchase food labeled as natural or organic. So you see, they're very, very discerning with the labels that are placed on things by people they don't know. 317% more likely to participate in environmental groups or causes. You got to love people who are committed to the climate change hoax. Hey, businesses, here's your target audience. These people will do whatever they're told. 149% more likely to make financial contributions to arts, cultural, or environmental organizations. They're adventurous. 59% agree travel is one of their passions. 58% more likely to visit cultural or historical sites while traveling internationally. And 48% more likely to have gone backpacking in the last year. There's your target audience, corporations. I mean, backpacking, who cares? <laughs> They're tech savvy. 67% try to keep up with developments in technology. 60% more likely to work in a technology-related role. And 78% do as much research as possible before buying electronics. So you got to wonder what kind of corporations they're attracting with that demographic. And of course, there are corporations involved in the global agenda reflecting to these people their own politics and profiting off of these people. Companies with ESG agendas, companies connected to the World Economic Forum. You get the picture. But who else contributes to NPR? On InfluenceWatch.org, you can type in NPR. A few entries down, you will find NPR. And when you go on the NPR page on InfluenceWatch.org, they talk about the donations under the section Major Donations. In 2003, NPR received over $200 million from the estate of Joan Kroc, the widow of McDonald's mass franchiser Ray Kroc. Most of the funds were deposited in NPR's endowment. Why does National Public Radio have an endowment and still get money from the government and still request money from their listeners? It's strange. In 2010, NPR received $1.2 million from George Soros's Open Society Foundations to launch the Impact on Government Project, which intended to station two reporters at each state capital to report on state-level government affairs. The donation attracted controversy because of George Soros's reputation as a left of center donor and because it was announced on the same day, NPR fired Juan Williams for comments he made on Fox News. Critics accused NPR of demonstrating left wing bias despite claiming to be a broadcasting organization for public benefit. And they have had uh, accusations of bias over the years. It is covered a bit in this InfluenceWatch.org entry. And there's this interesting tidbit. In 2017, former NPR CEO Ken Stern wrote an op-ed for the New York Post in which he described his time at NPR as being influenced by left-of-center bias. Stern wrote, when you are liberal and everyone else around you is as well, it is easy to fall into groupthink on what stories are important, what sources are legitimate, and what the narrative of the day will be. Influence watched. Dot org notes, nonetheless, other sources, including media watchdog All Sides, consider NPR to be a left-leaning, 
but ultimately centrist media outlet. And you got to give them the benefit of the doubt, right? Some organization says that they are left-leaning, but ultimately centrist. Now, the thing is, centrists don't exist. And centrism is an entirely made-up concept for communists who don't want anyone to know they're communists. Hey, we're going to allow this communism stuff, but we don't want to go quite as far right now as these communists want to. We'll give them about five years of a head start, and in five years we will be in the position they're in now, but we will still be arguing against their position, which makes us centrist, as we allow communism to dog walk us into dystopia. And you can, of course, notice this effect in the real world right now, including from people who are ostensibly on the right, on our side. They are absolutely obsessed with winning credit for boldly proclaiming that we should not be lopping off the genitals of children. That, they believe, is what makes them so heroic and so conservative, except for the fact that they are part of the GOP establishment who has allowed over decades our country to get to the point where any children's genitals are being lopped off. Now, we can all take responsibility for allowing society to get to this place, and I'm certainly part of what allowed it to get to this place if we really want to hash it all out. But we don't need to make heroes out of people who are recognizing the bare minimum most obvious stuff while ignoring higher order problems like the fact that our elections don't count. So NPR also has donations from the exact people you would assume NPR has donations from, you know, the very best people in the world, the philanthropists. You can go down to the donor organizations linked to NPR on influencewatch.org. And here is what you'll find. The Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, the Mellon Foundation, the Casey Foundation, Arcus Foundation, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, California Endowment, the Carnegie Corporation, Christopher Reynolds Foundation, the Ewing Marion Kaufman Foundation, Fidelity Investments, the Ford Foundation, the Foundation to Promote Open Society. Goldman Sachs Philanthropy Fund, Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation, the Joyce Foundation. And I'm not going to read all of these. So jumping down in the list a bit, the Newman's Own Foundation, Pew Charitable Trusts, the Public Welfare Foundation, Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, Schwab Charitable Fund, Silicon Valley Community Foundation, the Skoll Foundation, the Tides Foundation, the Walton Family Foundation. Hey, that's Walmart. And that family's combined net worth is $196 billion, according to Influence Watch. And then we have the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation. So these foundations are the same foundations attached to all left-wing nonprofits and political action committees and NGOs. Everything they use outside of government to implement the agenda, all of the instruments they use to facilitate money laundering and facilitate political influence. They're the ones funding NPR. Now, these organizations, these families, these philanthropists, these endowments are all linked to the World Economic Forum and the global agenda through the UN, through the WHO, through the WTO. People like Bill Gates and George Soros donate to all these causes. They fund science. They own companies who are 
World Economic Forum partners, and they also fund NPR. So the next step, though, in the process is to understand that those organizations, those transnational corporations who are part of the World Economic Forum, who contribute to these other non-governmental organizations, these global governance organizations, the political action committees, the NGOs and nonprofits, they own the pharma companies. They contribute to the pharma companies. They contribute to the science that supplies the pharma companies. And then the pharma companies pay for mainstream media. And a bunch of these other transnational corporations pay for mainstream media through their advertising dollars, through gifts. And then the mainstream media disseminates their agenda, which just so happens to be the same agenda that these same people are disseminating through NPR. And NPR is connected directly to the state. They are a state organization, regardless of where their other funding might come from. They can claim that they have editorial independence and they are not just disseminating the message of the state. They cannot claim they have editorial independence from all of these philanthropists and endowments and organizations because they don't. Otherwise, these people wouldn't be donating to them. That's kind of the deal. Hey, we'll give you millions and millions of dollars if you do exactly what we say. That's what the money is for. Bill and Melinda Gates aren't giving them money so that they can get NPR tote bags. So I appreciate Tucker's exposure of NPR to a mainstream audience to the extent that he did that. But you have to wonder why he didn't keep going, because the fact that the state contributes to NPR, something virtually everyone understands, is not nearly as interesting as the fact that all the major globalists contribute to NPR. So you have to wonder if the reason he didn't address that is because all of these people fund Fox News as well. And truth be told, both Fox News and NPR are telling generally the same story that is simply marketed to different audiences. And again, Tucker is the best of the mainstream people. There's absolutely no question about that. And he may be helping and doing something that is desperately needed in the mainstream media. But the people out there, including and especially the people in Fox News's audience, are certainly ready to hear the truth. And you got to wonder why they're not being told it. So let's switch gears to the Ukraine debacle and an article released in the evening yesterday from the New York Times. Ukraine war plans leak prompts Pentagon investigation. Classified war documents detailing secret American and NATO plans for building up the Ukrainian military ahead of a planned offensive against Russia were posted this week on social media channels, senior Biden administration officials said. The Pentagon is investigating who may have been behind the leak of the documents which appeared on Twitter and on Telegram, a platform with more than half a billion users that is widely available in Russia. Oh, no, Telegram. It's so scary. Military analysts said the documents appear to have been modified in certain parts from their original format, overstating American estimates of Ukrainian war dead and understating estimates of Russian troops killed. So these documents have been leaked. The U.S. NATO regime war plans in Ukraine for their spring offensive that is surely going to lead the Ukrainians to victory. 
The Biden administration has said that these documents leaked. They're conducting an investigation about these documents, but they just want you to know that despite the documents being real, according to them, the information in the documents might not be real. And the way to know that the information in the documents is not real, it's because it makes the regime look bad and the war in Ukraine look like a completely lost cause. And they want you to know if you start getting that impression from these documents, that's misinformation because the truth is Ukraine is definitely going to win. And they've been telling us the truth about the numbers of dead the entire time. The modifications could point to an effort of disinformation by Moscow, the analyst said. But the disclosures in the original documents, which appear as photographs of charts of anticipated weapons deliveries, troop and battalion strengths and plans, represents a significant breach of American intelligence in the effort to aid Ukraine. Biden officials were working to get them deleted, but had not, as of Thursday evening, succeeded. We are aware of the reports of social media posts and the department is reviewing the matter, said Sabrina Singh, the deputy press secretary at the Pentagon. The documents do not provide specific battle plans like how, when and where Ukraine intends to launch its offensive. And because the documents are five weeks old, they offer a snapshot of time the American and Ukrainian view as of March 1st of what Ukrainian troops might need for the campaign. So you see, not only are they potentially manipulated and changed by those dastardly Russians, they're also five weeks old. So you can't predict anything based on these documents. Things have certainly changed. These documents are not a big deal. They're too old and they're just filled with misinformation. To the trained eye of a Russian war planner, field general, or intelligence analyst, however, the documents no doubt offer many tantalizing clues. The documents mention, for instance, the expenditure rate of HIMARS, American-supplied high-mobility artillery rocket systems, which can launch attacks against targets like ammunition dumps, infrastructure, and concentrations of troops from a distance. The Pentagon has not said publicly how fast Ukrainian troops are using the HIMARS munitions, the documents do. It was unclear how the documents ended up on social media, but pro-Russian government channels have been sharing and circulating the briefing slides, military analysts said. The analysts warned that documents released by Russian sources could be selectively altered to present the Kremlin's disinformation. Whether these documents are authentic or not, people should take care with anything released by Russian sources said Michael Kaufman, the director of Russian studies at CNA, a research institute in Arlington, Virginia. Sweet. A military industrial complex think tank. One of the slides said 16,000 to 17,500 Russian soldiers had been killed while Ukraine had suffered as many as 71,500 troop deaths. The Pentagon and other analysts have estimated that Russia has suffered far more casualties and that closer to 200,000 soldiers on each side had been killed or wounded. You see, Ukraine isn't losing troops at four times the rate of the Russians. They're actually both losing troops like crazy. And that's why Russia is losing. And they would never, ever lie to us about the number of deaths. They would only lie in secret documents that they never expected you to see. 
Nonetheless, analysts said part of the documents appeared authentic and provide Russia with valuable information, such as the timetables for the delivery of weapons and troops, Ukrainian troop buildup and other military details. A document labeled top secret offers the status of conflict as of March 1st. On that day, Ukrainian officials were at an American base in Weisbaden, Germany for war games sessions. And a day later, General Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and General Christopher Cavoli, the Supreme Allied Commander for Europe, visited the sessions. Another document includes columns that list Ukrainian troop units, equipment and training with schedules for January through April. The document contains a summary of 12 combat brigades that are being assembled, with nine of them apparently being trained and supplied by the United States and other NATO allies. Of those nine brigades, the document said that six would be ready by March 31st and the rest by April 30th. A Ukrainian brigade has about 4,000 to 5,000 soldiers, analysts said. The document said that equipment delivery times would impact training and readiness in order to meet the deadline. Total equipment for nine brigades, the document said, was more than 250 tanks and more than 350 mechanized vehicles. The leak is the first Russian intelligence breakthrough that has been made public since the war began. Well, that's not true. You see, when the war began, it was immediately reported that the illegitimate Biden administration had handed over American and Five Eyes Intelligence to China, who then promptly handed it right over to Russia. And one might suspect that the war would be over at that point once the enemy knows all of your plans and has all of your intelligence because you gave it to them. But nope, you got to put the Ukraine flag outside your house. You got to deal with a bunch of NAFO idiot trolls on Twitter. You got to put your blue and yellow flag emojis everywhere. You got to start saying Slava Ukraini and you got to start denying that Ukrainian Nazis who've been there for eight decades are actually Ukrainian Nazis. They can't be because we are told the leader of Ukraine is Jewish. So therefore they can't be Nazis. Denying the existence of Nazis is not anti-Semitic when you can blame it on a Jew. Throughout the war, the United States has provided Ukraine with information on command posts, ammunition depots, and other key nodes in the Russian military lines. Such real-time intelligence has allowed the Ukrainians to target Russian forces, kill senior generals, and force ammunition supplies to be moved farther from the Russian front lines, though U.S. officials say Ukraine has played the decisive role in planning and execution of those strikes. So the U.S. has been providing key information the entire time on where Russian assets are, where the key nodes in the Russian military lines are. They've helped them target Russian forces. They've helped with targeted assassinations. And that was reported a year ago. And the rest of this, it's good that the New York Times is reconfirming this, admitting this. But it sounds like the United States is basically running the war for Ukraine. And of course, Ukraine's army is made up of Ukrainian Nazi battalions foreign mercenaries, and then Ukrainian citizens who are forced by those Ukrainian Nazis to go die in the wood chipper in Bakhmut, which, by the way, has essentially been lost. 
Colonel McGregor talked about that on Judge Napolitano's show this week. He basically said Russians set up in this area to allow the Ukrainian forces to continue moving in as they destroyed them. And this has been going on for quite a while now. We had all sorts of people telling us that Bakhmut was the critical stand for the Ukrainian army to make. And now that they have lost, we are being told that Bakhmut was not the critical stand for the Ukrainian army to make. And sure, they've lost about 25% of the country already, and it's just become Russia. But we can still pretend that Ukraine will win. Back to the New York Times. But early on during the war, Ukrainian officials were hesitant about sharing their battle plans with the United States for fear of leaks. American and European officials said as recently as last summer, American intelligence officials said they often had a better understanding of Russia's military plans than of Ukraine's. The intelligence sharing between Ukraine and the United States loosened up considerably last fall, and the two countries have been working closely on options for a Ukrainian offensive. So throughout this entire time, the fake and illegitimate administration has been sharing intelligence with the Ukrainians after, of course, sharing it with the Chinese and the Russians. But they want everybody to know that they weren't responsible for any of the planning. That's all Ukraine doing that. I mean, sure, we're giving them hundreds of billions of dollars of funding and weapons and munitions, and we're helping them target Russian military assets and Russian leaders for assassination. But we're not planning any of it. We're just like helping our buddies out over there because they asked us. We're not really part of the war. It would be crazy to pretend that the United States is part of an undeclared war around the world that isn't remotely in our national interest and is only to protect a regime stronghold so that they can restart all of their corrupt enterprises like drug trafficking and human trafficking and money laundering and, you know, bioweapons research. It's hard out there for the regime. I mean, after they lost Afghanistan, can you imagine just losing Afghanistan and not having another place to sink money endlessly into so that it can be scraped off to regime allies? Gosh. So we give Ukraine intelligence. Ukraine doesn't give us their intelligence until maybe last fall when it loosened up a little. And our intelligence community believes they understand everything about what Russia is doing. But despite all that, they have no idea what happened with the Nord Stream sabotage. Now, you might think after 14 months of this enormous disaster in Ukraine and at this late stage of the game where we have been told that everything depends on this spring offensive that is definitely coming that your enemy and the rest of the world being able to look at your plans might mean that the war is lost. But don't worry, it's not. In fact, it only makes Ukraine stronger. So we need to keep giving them money and eventually we need to give them our young men and women in the military because someone's got to die over there to protect the regime. And they're running out of Nazis and mercenaries. Now, the website, the organization, The Gray Zone, has done some great coverage on this entire Ukraine war from the beginning. And they have an article on this leak 
today. The headline is leaked documents expose U.S. NATO Ukraine war plans. Classified Pentagon documents containing information about the U.S. and NATO plans for a Ukrainian offensive and key details of the ongoing war have leaked. And the Biden administration is reportedly demanding they be scrubbed from the Internet. Is there a hidden agenda behind the leak? The New York Times has reported a significant breach of American intelligence in the effort to aid Ukraine through the leak of classified documents which have been shared on social media. Its correspondents cited senior Biden administration officials who apparently tipped the outlet off to the story. Documents circulating on Telegram, which closely resemble those referred to by the Times, are reproduced at the end of this article, so you can go on there and see them. I've also posted them in the info stream on Telegram, t.me slash I'm your moderator. Neither the New York Times nor the military analysts it cited explain how the documents were altered or why they have the appearance of tampering. However, because the leaked documents have arrived in the form of photographs of printed documents rather than original files, the possibility of forgery or alteration must be considered. The leaked documents claim that Russia has sustained troop losses ranging from 16 to 17,500 while Ukrainian losses amount to as many as 71,500, a staggering differential that stands at odds with the triumphalist narrative projected by Kiev. They are dated March 1st, 2023, and appear to be part of an ongoing briefing effort to analyze the war's progress and plan a Ukrainian counteroffensive. The Gray Zone obtained the documents from a public Telegram channel. Though they resemble those by the Times, we cannot confirm their authenticity. According to the New York Times, the Pentagon is investigating the leak while the White House is, quote, working to get them deleted. Twitter owner Elon Musk appears to have confirmed the pressure campaign, sarcastically commenting, yeah, you can totally delete things from the Internet. That works perfectly and doesn't draw attention to whatever you were trying to hide at all. Perhaps the most notable piece of information contained in the leaked documents relates to military death tolls, with Ukrainian and Russian losses estimated at about a four to one ratio. According to one document, 71,500 Ukrainian troops have been killed in action. That figure is close to the 100,000 killed in action cited by EU Commission President Ursula von der Leyen in a November 2022 speech before her comments were retracted. It also tracks closely with statements by one of Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky's top advisors, Mikhailo Podolyak, who told the BBC in June of last year that Ukraine was losing between 100 and 200 soldiers per day, 200 deaths per day over the course of 370 days between the launch of Russia's military operation and the date of the documents would total 74,000. Other American and EU state officials have offered dramatically different figures, placing Russia's killed in actions over the six-figure mark. For instance, Norway's defense chief has charted 100,000 Ukrainian soldiers dead to Russia's 180,000, while chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley, asserted that Russia's losses are significantly well over 100,000. Another key detail in the documents pertains to the size of the front lines in Donetsk. Russia maintains 91 battalions in the Donetsk axis with around 23,000 total personnel, while Ukraine maintains eight brigades and 40 battalions with 10 to 20,000 total personnel. 
The documents also outline expectations of weapons deliveries to Ukraine from the U.S. and other NATO countries, along with training schedules for Ukrainian forces as a spring counteroffensive approaches. The timeline spans from January through April, detailing 12 Ukrainian brigades under construction and the weapons they have been or will be supplied. Nine brigades are said to be armed and trained by the U.S. and NATO allies, and six are said to be ready by the end of March, while the rest will be in action by the end of April. The brigades are said to require 253 tanks, 381 mechanized vehicles, 480 motor vehicles, and more. And it's worth noting again, does it sound like the U.S. is not directly involved in this war, as we're being told? We're just sending the brave Ukrainians money and weapons so they can defend their homeland. That's what we're told. We are fully involved in a war that the citizens did not sign up for, don't want, and don't want to pay for. But this is what you get when the television convinces a large chunk of this country to believe that Joe Biden actually got 81 million real legal American votes and is president and fighting for a worthy cause so worthy that we are not even allowed to dissent no matter what we're told. While the documents distributed on Telegram contain important details about NATO and Ukrainian military capacity and highlight the astounding depth of American involvement in the war, their publication raises a number of questions. If the documents were partially faked, were they disseminated to help Russia advance its public relations goals, perhaps by minimizing their casualty numbers or inflating those of their foe? They certainly would not be fooling anyone at the Department of Defense, since they obviously have the original files on hand. Or could it be that the United States leaked the documents with faulty intelligence strewn throughout their contents to confuse Russia ahead of a Ukrainian offensive? There is also the possibility that they are 100% authentic. If so, Ukraine and its Western patrons may have more serious problems than a few leaked documents. And that is a valid point. You should keep an open mind to all the possibilities. The possibility that this is just real. It is a genuine leak. These are authentic documents. And our so-called leaders in the evil twin faction of the United States have simply been lying to everyone the entire time about how this war has evolved. The documents could be Russian disinformation. If they were, it would be awfully weird for the fake administration to be trying to get them deleted from the internet. Again, that's not something that you can take as fact just because it's been reported either. And you would think in that case that they would be coming out and supplying different numbers and saying, no, this is what it is in a way that sounds plausible or believable, which they don't do. Or it could be a disinformation operation by the U.S. in order to confuse the Russians. There is just nothing throughout this entire time that suggests the regime is actually crafty or competent enough to confuse the Russians. If that was the case, this war effort would be going a lot better. But we will see how this evolves over the next few weeks. And at some point, we will see indicators about whether or not these leaked documents are authentic or a trick of one side or the other. It seems to me that if the documents were authentic, the response from the evil twin faction in the United States, the illegitimate administration, the military industrial complex, the regime would track what is happening 
with the New York Times right now. I mean, certainly Russian intelligence is not going to be fooled by a New York Times article. The people who would be fooled by a New York Times article are people who read the New York Times and believe everything it says. We don't actually need to believe anything about this article other than it opens up a new narrative to keep our eyes on. And if we see a major scale back of things from the regime, U.S., Ukrainian side, that may well suggest that the spring offensive is not working out as intended. If this is real, you have to think that the spring offensive is probably dead in the water. And the truth is, it may not matter because Volodymyr Zelensky and Ukraine are already talking about allowing Russia to keep Crimea as part of their negotiations. Not that there was ever any chance that Russia was not going to keep Crimea. They've already had Crimea for eight years. Ukraine saying they're now willing to let it go is like telling all your friends that you're breaking up with your girlfriend, even though she left you eight years ago. That's not you being bold in your decision making. That is you finally accepting a reality that you've been avoiding for a really long time. And speaking of realities that have been avoided for a really long time, it seems that the collapse of Hollywood is well underway. And this is something I've been talking about for the better part of three years at this point. All of Hollywood is propped up by a system that largely resembles the fake administration. Everybody is hustling for power. The most competent people, to the extent that there are competent people, are compromised so that they will do whatever they are supposed to do, whether that's by money or there's something in their past they don't want to come out. Everything is reputation and image and the manipulation of power. And it's always been like that to some extent, but it wasn't that long ago where they focused on making good products that people find entertaining and want to go watch. Now they are guided by the global agenda and global regime money. And Hollywood itself has begun realizing that Hollywood has no idea what's going on. This is from The Hollywood Reporter on Monday. Inside Amazon Studios, big swings hampered by confusion and frustration. And this is a bit of a long article, but it is incredible. So let's just take a crack at it and I hope you'll enjoy it. It's long been an open secret that Jeff Bezos has yearned for his own Game of Thrones and that Amazon's big swing as it reached for its own massive hit was the Lord of the Rings, the Rings of Power believed to be the most expensive series ever made. Last September, the show began with a bang, delivering the biggest debut ever on the streamer in what Amazon Studios' chief Jennifer Salky called a very culturally defining moment for the company. But when season one wrapped, the show was less defining than hoped, falling short of being the breakout hit that Amazon had envisioned. While Amazon, like other streamers, provides only limited data, and internally it held information even more closely than usual on the series, sources confirmed that the Rings of Power had a 37% domestic completion rate, customers who watched the entire series. Overseas, it reached 45%. 
A 50% completion rate would be a solid but not spectacular result, according to insiders. The show has not been a major awards contender either, overlooked by the major guilds, with the exception of one SAG-AFTRA nomination for Stunt Ensemble. So what that means is that people who started watching The Rings of Power, only 37% of them watched the entire season. That's actually horrible. I mean, think about Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones got bigger and bigger until the end of the show. Lord of the Rings couldn't even take people through an entire season. But according to Salky, the series worked. This desire to paint the show as anything less than a success, it's not reflective of any conversation I'm having internally, she says. The second season, currently in production, will have more dramatic story turns, she adds. That's a huge opportunity for us. The first season required a lot of setting up. So you see, the woke version of Lord of the Rings was not at all a success, but inside the organization, that's not how they're describing it because they've got to put out more of it. And so they wouldn't want to say, yeah, we know it's a terrible show. Data from Nielsen on Minutes Watched reveals that when it comes to original shows generally, Amazon has lagged. In 2022, Netflix hoovered up the top 10 spots for original streaming series, with Amazon's The Boys in 11th place, ahead of The Rings of Power at number 15. Using the same measurement, none of the top 15 originals of 2021 came from Amazon. Netflix again took all the slots except for Hulu's The Handmaid's Tale in 10th place, Apple's Ted Lasso at 12, and Disney's WandaVision in the 14th spot. And the fact that the numbers on viewership aren't available from the streaming services has always been an interesting characteristic of these services, because there's no public way to know if the shows we're told are big hits are actually big hits. You can measure the public conversation and see what people are talking about. And sometimes that's valid, but most of that comes in through social media. And we already understand the manipulations of social media that are available. We know that the shows that promote the global agenda are widely talked about in all of the various publications, all the websites. They try to make all of these new pieces of content really big deals, even when no one wants to see them, no one watches them, no one appreciates the agenda. They will still sell it to the public and say that these shows are really successful, we have no real way of knowing if that's actually true. Many current and former Amazon executives, as well as showrunners who have series at the streamer and agents who make deals there, believe that this is no accident. And showrunners, by the way, are the people who conceive of the storyline throughout the season. They'll often participate in writing episodes, directing episodes. They are the one singular brain behind the storyline. Or sometimes, as with Game of Thrones, there are two of them or a team of them. They describe Amazon Studios as a confusing and frustrating place to do business. When it comes to movies where Amazon's footprint is expanding following the $8.5 billion acquisition of MGM a year ago, a veteran producer says that in recent years, Quote, there has been no sense of what the philosophy is. On the series side, numerous sources say they cannot discern what kind of material Salky and the head of television Vernon Sanders want to make. A showrunner with ample experience at the studio says there's no vision for what an Amazon Prime show is. You can't say 
They stand for this kind of storytelling. It's completely random what they make and how they make it. Another showrunner with multiple series at Amazon finds it baffling that the streamer hasn't had more success. Amazon has, quote, more money than God, this person says. If they wanted to produce unbelievable television, they certainly have the resources to do it. But with all the money, with Jeff Bezos, with all the data that they could ever need to make quality entertainment and be successful in doing so, they're still unable to do it. Why is that? But Salky believes the studio's approach fits Amazon's broad remit. I have never been one to say to the creative community, we need five action franchise shows and three workplace situation comedies. That's the kiss of death, she says. You don't reverse engineer true creative vision. We are programming for over 250 million households across the entire globe. We would say we have a big, broad audience, and we are looking for content that entertains the four quadrants. That is male and female, over 35, and under 35. And that is a pretty common concept, the four quadrants. Ideally, for instance, a family Christmas movie or an action blockbuster might appeal to all four quadrants, men under and over 35, women under and over 35. A piece of entertainment that appeals to all of them is commonly thought to have the broadest audience. The question that makes many in Hollywood nervous is whether the Amazon Studios overlords in Seattle believe they are getting enough bang for their megabucks. The last thing the industry wants at a time of belt tightening is a cutback in spending from a deep-pocketed buyer. According to Salky, that concern is misguided. The proof exists that the giant tentpole shows are driving people to subscribe to Prime, she says. Do we pressure ourselves to be more disciplined, more strategic? Of course. We consistently examine if we're producing the right amount of content at the right value to drive the most engagement across our service. Like Apple, Amazon is not a traditional entertainment company, but a huge retailer with a side hustle in Hollywood. Amazon's view is that the more hours you spend watching Prime Video, the more likely you are to renew your membership and the more likely you are to shop on the site. As Amazon, like Netflix, pursues overseas growth in the wake of saturation in the U.S., Salky notes that in some countries like South Africa and Argentina, Amazon's programming is at the tip of the spear. Entering the territory before retail sales or fast free shipping is even available. International is everything, she says. It is our business to deliver global shows for a global audience. And it's pretty funny how their goal of delivering global shows for global audiences is causing them to fail. And that's because there aren't global shows. There are good shows that people want to watch and bad shows that people don't want to watch. They are enforcing the same global agenda around the world, trying to get people through propaganda and censorship to believe that they need to be taking in a certain kind of entertainment. And so to follow that agenda, they attempt to supply content that will be enjoyed by everyone who has adopted the mindset they're supposed to adopt. The streamer has certainly had its success stories, including buzzy shows like Transparent, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, and Fleabag, and popular series like The Boys, Jack Ryan, Jack Reacher, and The Terminal List. 
but it has arguably never had a brand defining show that is a commercial and critical juggernaut in the vein of HBO's Game of Thrones, Netflix's Stranger Things or Apple's Ted Lasso. And all of those Amazon series except Jack Reacher and The Terminal List were launched when Salky's predecessor, Roy Price, ran the studio. Price departed in 2017 amid allegations of improper conduct. Salky took over in 2018. And you remember 2017, back when Me Too was happening, and men who were in positions of leadership at massive corporations were taken out of those positions through Me Too claims and replaced by women or other people hired based on their identity characteristics, and things just started falling apart. Now, is that an argument to say that men are necessarily better at running studios and streaming services? No, not necessarily. But it kind of gives you an idea that taking people who are successful out of leadership positions through the cultural shaming that ensues after salacious allegations are made and replacing them with other people who couldn't have gotten the jobs otherwise may not be the best idea when you're talking about really big operations with tons of money behind them. One of Salky's first green lights was Daisy Jones and the Six, based on the Taylor Jenkins Reid novel and co-produced by Reese Witherspoon's Hello Sunshine. Lauren Neustadter, president of film at Hello Sunshine, says she and Witherspoon had lunch with Salky just as she was starting at Amazon. She was really clear and articulate in her vision for what she wanted to do with the job, Neustadter says. Reese and I both said Daisy is all the things she was talking about. The book, the show, fashion. We had big dreams for this. Amazon put more than $140 million into production, in part due to high COVID protocol costs. <laughs> they destroyed their own financial model by enforcing the COVID stuff. It was hilarious and so, so stupid. The show dropped March 3rd with solid numbers and eventually topped Parrot Analytics weekly engagement chart. The two-year-old novel popped back onto Amazon's bestseller list, and the retailer is able to sell tie-in merchandise. Aurora, an album featuring songs from the fictional band, is climbing the Billboard charts. However, insiders say the show remains shy of the breakout hit the studio hoped for. Released around the same time, Donald Glover's Swarm is also delivering strong results for Amazon at a more modest $30 million budget. A far more costly and troubled production was the Russo Brothers' Citadel which debuts on April 28th. Anthony Russo said Salky first approached AGBO, the Russo's production company, with a general concept of making a U.S. show with international foreign language versions. AGBO came up with a global spy show where you would have a mothership U.S. language show alongside foreign language versions in other countries, Russo says. The various versions are related to one another, but they also exist independently and distinct from one another. Some of the international shows may be set in different time periods, he adds. Amazon has contributed to three seasons of three versions of the show. So far, a local language production is underway in Italy and in early stages in India. We love the ability to communicate with people all over the world and to connect people through stories, Russo continues. Amazon and Jen basically brought us a brand new opportunity to do that at a scale that's never been attempted before. But in December 2021, with production well underway, the Russo brothers decided to replace showrunner Josh Applebaum. 
It was clear after some audience feedback and discussion that some changes needed to be made, said Mike LaRocca, president and co-founder of AGBO. We felt like it needed some more character work early to draw people into the show. It was that straightforward. Applebaum declined to comment. David Weil took over as showrunner. When Joe Russo came on set, a huge bunch of material was tossed out, an insider says. Sources say the cost of the series climbed toward $300 million, making it Amazon's second most expensive show after Lord of the Rings. In an onstage March 10th conversation with Salky at South by Southwest, Priyanka Chopra said her work on Citadel was the first time she'd achieved pay parity in 22 years. Priyanka Chopra is a massive celebrity married to a Jonas brother, and she is worried about talking about pay parity, a concept that makes legitimately zero market sense and is only the stuff pursued by the sort of people who are interested in equity communism. That prompted some Amazon executives to joke internally that this was actually the first and second time since she and the other leads on the show got paid significantly more than planned due to massive reshoots. And oh, ha 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 ha. It's the first and second time. You see, because we basically made two shows. There were so many mistakes in it. While the original plan called for eight hour long episodes, the show that will drop on Amazon in April ended up at six, roughly 40 minute episodes. So eight times 60 is 480. Six times 40 is 240. So they had massive reshoots that blew up their budget and they ended up with a show so bad that they had to cut it in half. <laughs> it's unbelievable. Amazon has already renewed it for a second season of six hour long episodes. There are a couple of relationships where I don't really understand the bet that is being made, says one Amazon veteran of the commitment to the project. But Jen believes in the Russos. The challenges on Citadel can happen with the, quote, best managed creative endeavors with the highest level of talent, Salky says, given the choice of making it mediocre or fucking great. We made the right call there. And at the end of the day, our customers will be the judge. And indeed they will. So good luck with that. It sounds like you're off to a great start, especially when you're saying things like the challenges can happen even with the best managed creative endeavors and the highest level of talent. It's honestly funny that Hollywood even pretends to make art anymore, especially the streaming services who are focused almost entirely on propaganda. Hunters and a league of their own, which is ending with a truncated season two, stand out as expensive disappointments of the sulky era. The latter cost in the ballpark of $90 million for eight episodes, including a premium paid to Sony for certain rights. And they mean the rights to the intellectual property of a league of their own, I imagine. And if you look up the Amazon, a league of their own series, the reviews, the articles about it. They have headlines like a league of their own cast on bringing LGBTQ narratives to updated version of 1992 baseball classic or the 10 gayest scenes in the a league of their own series. A league of their own cast talks making a more queer inclusive series adaptation of classic film. 
man, I can't believe that didn't work. Again, the series cost $90 million for eight episodes, and then they just cut season two short. That is a bomb. What generates some of the frustration that sources cite in dealing with Amazon is that Salky, who was previously president of NBC Entertainment, seems to be pursuing conflicting goals. Despite her assertion that Amazon is a home for talent, insiders say the mandate is increasingly not on finding the kind of curated hit that defines HBO, but more middle of the road, meat and potatoes shows like Jack Reacher. We're so desperate right now for safe hits. And Amazon exec says Netflix has also been pursuing broader material. And what does broader material mean, by the way? It means they are not catering specifically to LGBTQIA++ BIPOC audiences. It's what they call anything that normal middle-class Americans might want to watch. But at the same time, current and former Amazon executives say Salky has a pattern of quote, chasing what she perceives as hot. As one insider puts it, that person cites his examples paying a premium for Daisy Jones because of the Witherspoon connection or making a Dead Ringers series based on the 1988 David Cronenberg film that came with Rachel Weisz attached. Salky makes deals with auteur talent to deliver Jack Reacher results, says an Amazon veteran, but they don't. So Jack Reacher, the show about this guy who just kicks a lot of ass, was an absolutely massive hit on Amazon, despite not having really any notable stars, nor anything approaching the production value of some of these other shows. It was just a normal show. So what they want, what Amazon wants is to acquire auteur talent, like the most talented people in Hollywood, the people who can do it all. They're creating their own content. They're acting in that content. They can direct. They can write. Those are the auteurs. They want to capture that auteur talent. They're willing to pay top dollar to get that talent over to Amazon. They want to create big hits with this talent, but they're just not able to. Amazon recently renewed The Peripheral, a sci-fi drama from Jonah Nolan and Lisa Joy that cost close to $175 million for eight episodes. Sources say their final eight-episode season of Westworld at HBO cost about $140 million. Now, Westworld is a mostly terrible show with virtually no moral compass whatsoever. It's basically just promoting the technocracy and telling us that we should be nice to the superior species who will emerge through technology as they take us over. It was super expensive, but at least people watched it. The peripheral is more expensive and no one has really paid attention to it. Amazon has ordered six additional hours of the peripheral, despite what sources say has been lukewarm audience engagement. It probably should have been canceled, says an insider. But they made a mega deal and the political capital they would lose with Lisa and Jonah would be too great. And they have other shows coming. Fallout, the next show from Nolan and Joy, is also extremely expensive, says a source. Now think about this. They made a $175 million show that was a flop. They're going to reinvest for six more episodes at least, even though it probably should have been canceled, but they can't cancel it. Because Jonathan Nolan and his wife 
are too powerful for them to cancel their show. It would be too embarrassing for them. That's Hollywood politics. They decide to make a massive show. No one watches it. And since they can't admit defeat, they're going to double down and probably make it much, much worse. Nolan and Joy's deal has been worth at least $20 million a year since they signed on in 2019. One insider calls the Nolan deal the worst example of Salky's mantra that Amazon is a home for talent. He adds, we cede decisions to powerful producers. We hold the line on other producers who do great work for us. Nolan and Joy declined to comment. So because they have the big name and they're the big dollar producers with this great history of Westworld, they get to do whatever they want despite failure, where other people who actually make quality shows that are hits are not attended to the same way. And again, this is just a reflection of an organization that reflects the values of the global regime and, importantly, the party of false decorum. If you think about this in the Jason Lowry construct, the guy who wrote Soft War, uh, Space Force major, MIT computer engineer, he writes about abstract power projection versus real power. And in this realm, we could talk about real competence, the ability to produce hit shows that people like versus the branding and the name and the star quality and the production value that they put into all of these big flops. And because it's the party of false decorum, because they are concerned with the abstract power projection rather than competence and productivity, they will continue down the path of failure because the industry's politics and social incentives require it. Some rich Amazon deals have failed to produce anything at all. In the wake of serving as an executive producer on them, Lena Waithe got a two-year deal worth $8 million a year that yielded nothing. In November 2021, she moved her banner to HBO Max. She got $8 million to develop shows that never got made. And in September 2019, Amazon announced a deal with Phoebe Waller-Bridge, who had just swept up six Emmys for the second season of Fleabag. The plan was for Waller-Bridge to collaborate with Donald Glover on a Mr. and Mrs. Smith series based on the 2005 film. But within a few months, Waller-Bridge departed the show due to clashing creative styles. Her three-year deal at $20 million a year bore no fruit, yet Amazon recently renewed it announcing that Waller-Bridge would write, but not star in, a Tomb Raider series. Some Amazon insiders have questioned how much she will contribute to the project, noting that Amazon has been seeking a showrunner to help write and oversee it. So Phoebe Waller-Bridge, who created and starred in Fleabag, got paid $20 million on a three-year contract. Nothing came out of it, and they signed her up for another three years at $20 million to try to find a project she should work on. The low-key Sanders bristles a little at the assertion. Phoebe has not only fully embraced Tomb Raider, and I think is feeling very committed to it, but she's in a writer's room right now working on it, he says. Waller-Bridge is developing other material for the streamer as well, he adds. She's a perfectionist, so she absolutely wants to make sure that what she does is great and right, but she's proven that when she does deliver, she delivers. Waller-Bridge declined to comment, so she had her one hit show, and the show was clever. People liked it. People found her appealing, 
But now she's been paid $40 million and has produced absolutely nothing for it. What kind of organization can continue making payments to stars who make them seem relevant to the public, but don't produce anything? Well, that's a pretty interesting question, isn't it? And it's one we can ask about a whole variety of companies and a whole variety of industries. But a showrunner with considerable experience at Amazon sees it differently. They don't learn from their mistakes. They say, we can't do any more deals like that. You turn around and they're right back to the impolite term is star fucking. And what that means is basically selling yourself out for star power. It's trying to increase your social status by in one way or another, whether it is actually sexual or not, capitalizing on someone else's fame. For creative executives at the studio, the result has been exasperation. They say, we don't want to buy from outside studios, says a former Amazon exec. Then packages come and they buy everything that comes through the door and our development is thrown out. And so the idea is there, Amazon has this deep catalog of intellectual property from having acquired all of this prior content that they can then remake and rebrand and supply their own content through the use of that intellectual property. When they're talking about packages, what they mean is a particular show, whether it's a pilot with a story Bible. That's what they call it. That explains what's going to happen over the course of the season. Maybe they have the whole season written. They have different stars attached. One of the mega agencies is putting everything together. The writer, the director, the stars, they bring it all into Amazon as a package and say, Hey, do you want this? You really should buy this. Check out how great this entire package is. We've got everything all set up. So this showrunner is saying that Amazon says it's going to work off its own IP. And then every time some major star, this major package comes through the door, they throw whatever money they have to at that thing. One of Salky's early hires at Amazon was Sanders, who had worked very closely with her as head of current programming at NBC. At Amazon, Salky initially made him co-head and then sole head of television. Before coming to Amazon, Sanders was overseeing NBC shows that were already up and running rather than developing and launching shows. Some Amazon insiders complained that he doesn't offer them enough in the way of direction. So the work he was doing at NBC was basically just watching over work that people had already done. And so then he gets hired and put in this powerful position at Amazon And he essentially has no idea what he's doing. And we're about to see more of that. No one knows what he likes, says a former executive at the streamer. In a similar vein, a producer who's worked with Amazon says, Vernon seems so sincere. But when you talk to him about a project, you come away not knowing where you stand. What kind of shows does he really care about making? At the end of the day, that makes it hard for talent to truly trust him. He has no vision. No idea of what he wants. And if that's the case, then he's not really the one making the decisions, is he? The whole purpose of running a studio is that you are the one whose taste, whose experience, and whose foresight is supposed to guide the organization about what they should be making in order to be successful. So when there's a man in a decision-making position who does not have any basis on which he makes decisions, 
it's not even really possible that he is making the decisions. Sanders says his job is simply not to program for his own taste, echoing Salky's point about the importance of international. We have over 250 million global customers, so our goal is to program for everyone. We have a big, broad, and diverse audience, he says. We see that as one of our strengths. We can produce global tent poles as well as inventive, character-driven series with plenty in between. And our customers welcome it all. That's why Lord of the Rings and Swarm can coexist and succeed on our service. And that actually is not why. And also, we know that Lord of the Rings didn't succeed. Why did this man give the same exact answer, almost word for word, as Jennifer Salky? It's like they've just been programmed to say these things. This is the excuse. When they are asked questions about why the stuff's not going well, they're like, well, we have a lot of people to please, so no one's going to like everything. And sure, when you're trying to please 250 million people around the globe at the same time, the truth is the things you make probably aren't going to please anyone. <laughs> and that's really what they're doing. Another complaint is that Sanders relies heavily on feedback from focus groups, which tend to favor broad and less inclusive programming. Several Amazon insiders say the reliance on testing and data led to a clash late last summer. When an Amazon executive said in a marketing meeting for the series, A League of Their Own, that data showed audiences found queer stories off-putting and suggested downplaying those themes in materials promoting the show. So they don't make decisions on taste. They want to make decisions on the data. So they get focus groups and the focus groups tell them, hey, here's what we like, which could potentially make sense when making business decisions if you were actually following the data upon which you rely to make your decisions because you have no other basis for decision making. But series co-creator Will Graham became greatly concerned about bias built into Amazon's system for evaluating shows, which multiple sources say often ranked broad series featuring straight white male leads above all others. One executive calls a league of their own a proxy for how diverse and inclusive shows are treated. Okay, so they're not making these shows based on art or quality of content. There is no actual guiding force. There's not someone with the taste that they can project through the content they're producing. He's not expected to have a vision. He's not expected to understand future trends or be in touch with the zeitgeist. The decisions have to be made on an entirely different level, they're data-driven decisions. And then when the data comes in and tells them quite specifically, we don't like what you're producing, they turn around and decide that the people in the focus groups are wrong and deciding things based on focus groups builds in a natural bias that they are trying to program away from. They are literally programming away from what people like and wondering why people don't like it. These are the types of people who decide what you're seeing on the television and on movie screens. The most powerful people in the propaganda business are completely and totally incompetent. Graham launched into an interrogation of the system, questioning multiple executives about it.
Amazon took the issue seriously and dropped the system of ranking shows based on audience scores. Yeah, I mean, who cares what they think? Insiders cite this show as one that Sanders did passionately support, but for months after it dropped, there was no word on whether it would be renewed. Ultimately, Amazon agreed to a four-episode second and final season. Still, several Amazon veterans believe the system remains too dependent on those same test scores. All this perpetuation of white guys with guns, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, says one. And another, relying on data is soul-crushing. There's never... I know the testing wasn't that great, but I believe in this. Graham declined to comment. Yeah, that's because no one believes in it. It's crazy how many different ways they can be shown what people want to watch and they still won't make it because their agenda is all that matters. Again, how is that possible in a for-profit business making deals of this magnitude? Donald Trump's out there negotiating Middle East peace, and these retards can't figure out that no one wants to watch the queer female baseball show. And these are the people who are our supposed elites. One executive says it was different when Salky first took charge at Amazon. She shot from the hip. She went with her gut and she didn't let data overrule her. This person says. But she hired a staff that was in over their heads in terms of being able to get those shows produced at a number. I think if we had FX boss John Landgraf or HBO's Casey Bloys or somebody who had more credibility and direct interaction with the development of the shows, it would be so much easier to spend less. But we kind of act like it doesn't matter if we have deep conversations with talent. A guy like Donald Glover would think, no way in hell I'm doing a deal with these guys unless they overpay me. I know we're third or fourth on their priority list. Agents are direct about this. You guys pay a premium for being Amazon. They have clients who would much rather work at other places. Salky responds, if people say my gut's been tamped down, there's no evidence for that. I mean, how much more insecure could you possibly be? That's not how normal people respond to questions. Imagine somebody says to you, hey, it doesn't seem like your heart's really in this. Do you then respond to them? Oh, well, you have no evidence of that. Uh, yeah, I do. It's your response right there. That is evidence that your heart's not in it. Even some producers who have successful television projects at Amazon say its executive structure remains confusing to the point of opacity. A recent reorganization, the latest of several, does not seem to have done much to clarify things. An executive at a production company that has done repeat business with Amazon says it's hard to know, quote, who you should go to if you want to bring a project to them, says a showrunner who has had success at the streamer. I couldn't honestly tell you who reports to whom it keeps changing. (laughs) I mean, it's nuts. The reason, by the way, that I'm going through this very long article is because this is a perfect example of how these communist structures are just doomed to fail. There is no difference between this and the bureaucracy we see in Washington. No difference between this and the way we understand communist countries to be. People advance through their commitment to the overall agenda, not their particular competence at what they're doing. And then, of course, they are only in their position to serve the agenda which is often in direct conflict 
with everything that might make the organization actually succeed in a free market. Some of the confusion around Amazon may arise from conflicting goals at the top. Mike Hopkins, Amazon Senior Vice President for Prime Video and Amazon Studios, is a seasoned business executive and a veteran of Sony and Hulu, but does not come from the creative side. A top industry executive who dealt with him at Hulu calls him a seemingly egoless, laid-back, efficient manager. A former Amazon executive says Hopkins is a very intelligent, very calm and collected leader, but all he seems to care about is the bottom line. He doesn't understand a lot about production because he doesn't come from that. Hopkins declined to comment. Salky is known as a charismatic leader who has a, quote, great touch around talent, says an agent. But one longstanding complaint is that she can be hard to reach and unresponsive to texts or emails. I really like Jen, says an executive whose company has done repeat business with Amazon. When you get her, she's really engaged. She's obviously spread thin. But if you actually get her, you can get a pretty clear answer. That issue might only be exacerbated as in the past year, Salky has taken on responsibility for MGM's film and television studios, as well as marketing oversight. On the fundamental issue of money, Hopkins and Salky were destined to clash. Her strategy is to get whatever seems hot. Mike's vision was to cut costs on shows and get football, says a former insider. In 2021, Amazon became the first streamer to make an exclusive deal with the NFL, signing an 11-year pact for exclusive rights to Thursday night football at $1 billion per season. Amazon sports chief Jay Marine told staff in a September note that the launch game produced the biggest three hours for U.S. prime signups ever in the history of Amazon. But while the streamer had told advertisers it expected to average 12.5 million viewers per game, at the end of the season, Amazon said it had 11.3 million viewers, while Nielsen calculated 9.6 million average viewers. Amazon said it compensated advertisers for the shortfall, but offered no specifics. In recent months, current and former Amazon executives say Salky seemed to be in a battle with Hopkins. Mike is a lot about budgets, and that's not something she reacts well to, says one. But a top executive at another entertainment company says his lack of creative experience hampers his ability to limit spending on shows and movies. That's why he says yes when Jen says, we've got to pay Simon Kinberg $8 million for a project, this person says. So the people with no taste and no vision and no decision-making capability who make their decisions on the basis of an agenda and data and trying to link themselves to the personal brands of stars and production companies will override the people who are at least competent about the money-making side. The $8 million deal with Simon Kinberg is a reference to the spy thriller Red Shirt, written by writer-producer Kinberg with Channing Tatum attached to Star. The project, acquired in November based on a treatment and short video heavily featuring Tatum, had several bidders, but Amazon offered the richest overall package. The film calls for Tatum to be paid $25 million, with a staggering $18 million for director David Leach. Add in Kinberg's $8 million for writing and producing services, and the deal represents one of the highest, if not the highest, payment for an original pitch in Hollywood deal-making history. Kinberg, Tatum, and Leach declined to comment. And that's only one of several pricey film bets that Amazon has made. 
Salky put in a preemptive bid for Air, the Nike movie with Ben Affleck and Matt Damon. Affleck says Salky was his point of contact during the making of the film, and he found her to be straightforward and true to her word. Salky, quote, always had thoughtful ideas and notes, he adds. We took almost all of them. Air, by the way, is a communist revision of the story about how Nike inked Michael Jordan to become the greatest sneaker endorser of all time. You gotta make Nike look good because you wouldn't want people to be talking about their Chinese manufacturing operations or the fact that that creepy little dude, Dylan Mulvaney, who pretends to be a young girl, prances around in Nike sports bras. But an executive at a competitor calls the deal for air crazy, claiming she just bought it off a pitch, went in and bought it for $160 million. Industry sources say it cost far less to produce. Matt made more money on air than any other movie but Born. She just took it off the table, says the executive. Affleck and Damon declined to comment on the deal. Another source involved with the project says he's certain some competitor would have matched the deal. While it's uncertain that the film, which has garnered critical acclaim, will gross enough at the box office to be profitable, the value of having it to lure subscribers to the streaming service may justify the expense. So they pay the most money of all time to acquire a project and they don't know if it'll be profitable, but they were prepared to do it no matter what. And why is it because somebody needs to propagandize Nike to the American public, even though they're one of the biggest brands in the world? Recently, Salky has been perceived as pivoting toward film. Several Amazon sources believe there was a tug of war with Hopkins over who would have oversight of the MGM film studio. Initially, Hopkins intended to hire former Fox and Paramount executive Emma Watts and have her report to him. But then Watts, a seasoned but sometimes sharp-elbowed exec, was out of the picture, despite having gone through vetting. Amazon announced in November that Salky, not Hopkins, would have direct oversight of the film studio despite her very limited film experience. Amazon declined to comment on the switch. Given Salky's background in television, many in the film community assumed she would need to hire an executive with strong movie experience to oversee MGM films. But some Amazon insiders believe she wanted to give the job to Julie Rappaport, the executive in charge of original movies for the streamer. While Rappaport is well-liked, in the view of several outside movie execs, she lacks the experience to run MGM film. Does anyone in this organization have the experience required to do their job or the competence required to do their job or the skill set, the taste, the vision, being in touch with the zeitgeist, understanding future trends required to do the job? Seems like the answer is no. And with all that money, how is it possible? If Salky wanted Rappaport in the job, there was one big snag. MGM's crown jewel is the James Bond franchise, which is controlled by Barbara Broccoli. Sources say Broccoli made it clear that she needed an experienced movie executive at the helm of MGM's film division. The sources also believe that Salky put her foot wrong with Broccoli by mentioning a possible Bond TV project, which Broccoli would not want. And following the acquisition of MGM's distribution arm, they say 
Broccoli was not impressed when weeks passed during which Amazon did not communicate with the longtime marketing and distribution executives who Broccoli sees as vital to handling the Bond films, leaving them in doubt as to whether they would keep their jobs. A source says one of those executives, the late Eric Lomas, fought to move Creed 3 out of a crowded November to a March release date, giving Amazon a hit that is gross $250 million. Salky says, we have deep respect for Barbara and Michael, a reference to Michael G. Wilson, her Bond producing partner. Broccoli did not respond to a request for comment. Amazon went through a protracted who's who of potential hires before settling on former Warner Brothers executive Courtney Valenti. Sources say Salky was chilly to Valenti during the hiring process, which Salky denies. Valenti joins former longtime Warner Brothers executive Sue Kroll, who in October became head of marketing for Amazon Studios and MGM. Even Amazon critics say Salky made an excellent move in hiring Kroll, who brings a much needed boost to promoting Amazon films and series. Now reunited, both Valenti and Kroll will report to Salky. Part of what irks some Amazon entertainment executives is that, as part of a supersized tech company, the studio must contend with an idiosyncratic culture that often doesn't mesh with traditional Hollywood practices. In a sense, Amazon, the parent, is as alien to Hollywood as previous outsiders who have come and gone, Coca-Cola, Matsushita, a wave of German investors. Amazon culture manifests itself in many ways that go beyond the well-known everyone flies coach rule. The compensation system caps base cash pay at $350,000 for all employees exclusive of signing bonuses, plus stock options, which for a high-level executive will make up the bulk of pay. The base pay cash ceiling was $160,000 until last year when the cap was increased due to the declining stock price. Over the past 12 months, the stock has been down more than 35%. In contrast, at Netflix, executives can decide what percentage of their compensation they will take in stock options. A lot of people there are not that incentivized to stick their necks out, says an agent. Everyone's sort of marking time to get as much stock to vest as they can. That's no way to run it. This is a hit-driven, risk-taking business. And again, see the parallel with the communist structure. They put a structure in place that leaves employees disincentivized to actually exhibit the qualities that would make them successful. And again, the only way to develop an organization that has no interest in risk taking by successful and talented individuals is one where all the decisions are made from the top and then handed down to these people who, while they are the top executives in this particular organizational structure, are still just essentially mid-level managers executing on someone else's plan. Another Amazon tradition, only top executives have offices until this year. Other high level execs have worked in assigned cubicles since January. However, the vast majority have to contend with agile seating, meaning they work at unassigned cubbies in designated neighborhoods and are provided with lockers for their belongings. These things are coming from so high up in the company, says an Amazon studios insider. It just contributes to the sense of anonymity that nobody knows where their own spaces and belongings are. 
This arrangement seems to be in favor with some tech types. Jason Kalar was adamant about imposing a similar plan at HBO and HBO Max, according to a source, though equivalent top executives at Netflix do get offices. Meanwhile, the broader company is now facing very public challenges. In January, Amazon announced the biggest workforce cuts in the company's history, laying off more than 27,000 of its 1.6 million employees. So far, the studio has been spared, though a hiring freeze is in effect. Industry executives feel it's imperative to keep as many buyers in the game as possible, and some worry that the NFL deal has shown Amazon a way to sign up subscribers in a way that is not as unpredictable as making scripted entertainment. Says one former insider, in bringing Mike in, they wanted to keep Jen in check. Then you add sports and in 24 hours make more progress than in eight years of TV. The whole sports launch changed the prism of how they look at the ecosystem and what role film and TV and music plays into it. These people are so bad at their jobs that they might not even have the business anymore. So far, Amazon hasn't hinted at any unhappiness with the return on its content spend, which was $7 billion on Amazon Originals, live sports, and licensed third-party video content in 2022. That's up 28% from the previous year, thanks in part to the cost of football and Lord of the Rings. In comparison, Netflix spent about $18 billion. According to Consumer Intelligence Research Partners, Amazon's U.S. Prime subscribers stalled last year at $168 million, essentially flat from 2021. The company last publicly disclosed a Prime subscriber number in 2021 when it said it had over $200 million globally. During a February earnings call, Amazon CFO Brian Olsavsky sounded upbeat. We regularly evaluate the return on the spend on content and continue to be encouraged by what we see as video has proven to be a strong driver of prime member engagement and new prime member acquisition. Speaking at a New York Times Dealbook Summit in November, CEO Andy Jassy said he could see a possible future in which Amazon's entertainment operations could work as a standalone business with very attractive economics. He added, all of that content is a really important ingredient in why people choose to sign up to Prime. But Amazon watchers might have noted that he mentioned Thursday Night Football in particular. The company will continue to invest in sports, he said, a unique asset with an unrivaled ability to drive prime signups. So things at Amazon Studios, their entertainment segment of Amazon seem to be totally rudderless and guided by incompetent people without taste who are putting out content related to an agenda that they say is supported by data and focus groups. And when the data and focus groups show that their decisions are bad, they blame the data and the focus groups. Now, data and focus groups aren't necessary because in a normal situation, the market responds. If you put out good content that people want to watch, people will watch it and they will pay to watch it. That is how a business model works in a free and open market. The only reason to have data and to have focus groups is to justify what they're doing all the money they're spending on star actors and star producers and packaged content, their focus on diversity and equity and inclusion. And that is a continuing focus for them, even though other production companies in Hollywood, 
including major ones, have realized that the woke thing doesn't sell and doesn't work and doesn't represent the future. Major companies are shifting away from that because they know no one wants to watch that crap. People are tuned into the fact that they are being propagandized now and no one wants any part of it. It's not just that the entertainment is bad and unwatchable. It's that it's actually offensive. In every way, it represents a viewpoint that more and more Americans and more people around the world as well find not only off-putting, but downright reprehensible. They don't want the global agenda shoved down their throat. They would like to be entertained every now and then, but it doesn't matter because there's a bigger agenda in play and decisions being handed down from the top and who's at the top at Amazon. Well, it's Jeff Bezos, ultimately, the same guy who propagandizes America through the Washington Post, the same guy who controls the Internet traffic of the world through Amazon Web Services, the same guy who buys up a lot of land and is trying to build rocket ships that can take him into space. And quite naturally, the same guy whose company is an official World Economic Forum partner. So we have these streaming services who are all connected to the World Economic Forum from the very top. They go along with the global agenda in every way possible. They are into diversity, equity, inclusion. They're into wokeness. They're into ESG. They're down with the entire thing. And they want to create content that continues to project that world as desirable. Because if people believe that the desirable world from that corporate perspective, is the real world that they themselves also agree is desirable, well, then those people will go out and act like that is the real world and help all of these companies create the world in which they profit, which requires the creation of a fully false reality for all of the normal people out there. And that's the project they've been on for decades. Now, when you have all that money, And you can put it into whatever content you want. Show these people Reese Witherspoon. They'll definitely buy Reese Witherspoon no matter what she does. Sure, make the show about female baseball players that is really highlighting LGBTQIA++ queer issues. Everybody's going to want to watch that because we're going to tell them they're bigots if they don't. They continue to choose these shows, even though their customers say they don't want to watch them. They don't like them. And their own data shows that no one is watching them and no one is liking them. Lord of the Rings finished the season with only 37% of the people who started watching it finishing it. That's terrible. But the money keeps coming in. Where is the money coming from? It comes from the top. It comes from from the regime. It comes from the system. And all of the streamers are like this, by the way. Netflix is no different. Spotify is no different. They pay massive sums of money to acquire talent. Sometimes it's Reese Witherspoon. On Spotify, it's Joe Rogan. They paid the Clintons to do a podcast that no one's ever listened to. They paid the Obamas to do the same thing. Netflix had Susan Rice on their board. Millions of dollars hundreds of millions of dollars, all to these people who even outside of these jobs project the global agenda to the world all the time. We don't know the statistics of viewership and listenership, 
But it's impossible to imagine that Susan Rice did anything to warrant the money she got paid or the Obamas did or the Clintons did. At least Joe Rogan has listeners. But the money just keeps coming in, despite the fact that none of these deals actually create profit. How does that keep happening? And the answer brings us all the way back around to NPR and Tucker Carlson. The people making the decisions at the top are the same people with the same agenda. The purpose isn't to please the audience. The purpose is to propagandize the audience and hope that enough of them will continue to watch the propaganda. And you can argue that there were, at some points, successes with this model, especially when they were able to manipulate social media algorithms and the media was writing about how great all these shows were. But that's all falling apart. People don't want that stuff anymore. People are tuning out from Hollywood movies and from these sorts of TV shows. There actually is a reason why people went out and saw Top Gun Maverick in droves and didn't care at all about the female Ghostbusters. But somehow they keep getting made and they keep getting made for top dollar. They're overpaying for the privilege to make this stuff that no one wants to see. And you got to be amused with how they're compensating their top level executives with stock options, even as these companies' reputations and business models continue to erode. Who knows what's going to happen in the not so distant future? All these companies are tied up in all the same things. Nike, Anheuser-Busch, in terms of that creepy little dude, Dylan Mulvaney, Amazon, Netflix, Spotify, all parts of tech and social media, all tied up in the same regime. It's not a conspiracy theory. It's a system. The system works together. They show you the system. They tell you how the system is going to work. You can see the system at work in the real world. It attempts at least to produce the results the system is said to produce and success is not measured by performance in a free and open market. It's only about whether or not the system produced the intended results. The system became massive. All the parts became massive together because they have control of global economies. The money at that level is essentially fake. They just send numbers to whoever needs new numbers. And the numbers can be used to control the people responsible for implementing the agenda. The problem is when people realize that the agenda is terrible, the product is not only bad, but an end result of evil and trickery and everything behind it is fake. Well, then people tune out and the system stops working. And that's the point we're reaching. Hollywood is beginning to realize it, but not nearly soon enough. They don't even understand what is coming when people, when America at large understands what they have actually done, maybe 30%, 40%, maybe 50% of the country has some sense of it, but sooner or later, everyone's going to find out. And the downside that none of these people have considered while profiting off the implementation of this agenda is once everybody who they actually depend on to consume their product realizes what they've been doing, they're toast. And we can all look forward to that. 
I'll be back on Monday at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic. And Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. If you're listening to this episode for free, you can support me and support the show and the work I do by signing up for a paid subscription at I'mYourModerator.Substack.com. You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month. Comes out to under a quarter per episode and you'll blast right through the paywall for all of the writing. The merch store is www.CancelCouture.com and you can find everything else by heading to Linktree. Linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. And I'll see you soon out on the range. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm your moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm your moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofi. Go to ko-fi.com slash 
I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!